welcome to the Found Cause, where we have found our cause and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I am Michael, the man behind the machine, and to my right is... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And all the way across the airwaves, it's... Theodore, under the PC, under the person of Christ. Hey, Theodore, here's Sebastian. How's it going? Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. Doing great. It's not Wednesday mm-hmm. when you're listening to this, of course, because we don't post on Wednesdays, but it's Wednesday for us. Um, Trump has won the New Hampshire primary. Uh, what are other relevant things that will date this episode? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's your dating for the episode. Today we're doing a classic response video because I feel like we didn't have enough responses in the, the past. So we've got another response video lined up right after our previous response video. This one is on a fellow YouTuber turned non-YouTuber. I guess he changed. he's one of these guys who used to have a cool screen name that was weird and then he changed it just to his regular name which because Google asked him to or because some, some PR person told him to. So um, this is Cosmic Skeptic, who I believe we responded to before. Maybe not, but at least he was on our radar. Um, now he's going by his actual name, Alex O'Connor. And he's kind of the latest, greatest young atheist that's popping up around. So this is him speaking at Oxford um, Union in, in England, famous university, where they have a lot of guest speakers talk on things like this. He's an atheist. Does he have anything new to say? I guess we'll see. But no, I think that we, if we haven't responded to him in the past, I can tell you that we've listened to him in the past. He is... Um, less pokey and sharp than some of those classic four horsemen atheists um, like uh, Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins or Christopher um, Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to keep forgetting <laughs> Christopher Hitchens' name. I'd say he's about on the level of um, Sam. Sam, whatever his face is. Harris. <laughs> Harris, thank you. Gosh, I can't remember anything. Uh, Sam Harris. Sam Harris is like a philosophical, atheist, sad, placid, affect, um, boring, and philosophical. I would say Alex O'Connor's right in that same vein as far as he has all the same old arguments, but he's not as like pokey. Uh, he's much more philosophical. And I'll say the most dangerous thing about Alex and the way he argues is he's always trying to build frameworks. Um, and he's always rebuilding frameworks, which is a very effective debate tool because you never allow yourself to be cornered. That's that's fair. It's fair to do that. But um, we need to watch him as debaters and as viewers of him. You need to watch him when he reframes the discussion and doesn't answer direct questions if he's in debate or he reframes speeches like this. You have to question the framework on which he is building his case as opposed to people like Matt Dillahunty or other atheists who are more pointed. They typically just build a straw man and attack it, which is all you have to do is say that the straw man isn't you to defeat that. Um, angry attack so um in that way alex is a little better at debate than those like matt dillahunty or aaron Ra or some of these other guys but um, i think he ultimately falls flat so let's let him talk about why god is either a delusion or he's evil here we go no that was on essentially the existence of god or whether it was a delusion he's a little quiet need of a replacement speaker now i won't go as far especially given the circumstances to call this providence However, it does leave you with a slight sense that there might have been more than chance at play in bringing me to this chamber tonight, but it is exactly that kind of thinking, the seeking of agency and design where there is in fact none that I've traveled here in an attempt to dispel. We've heard a lot about arguments, but as a psychological phenomenon, I wonder how relevant these really are to God belief. That is, when you hear somebody recounting a conversion story. Yeah, what's up? Right off the bat, he said, in fact... Um, uh, no agency or design. So right off the bat, he's asserting that is like his absolute truth, which is interesting to me. 
Yeah, and I think it it's interesting to hear his objections because I think this is very classic with anybody, but especially with atheists, that he will hold a standard for Christians or religious people that he absolutely immediately disregards for himself in that he says that uh, religious people are violent when, of course, atheists are violent. People kill each other, usually for atheistic reasons, even if they are themselves religious, where they want somebody's money or they want somebody's... Um, sex or they want somebody's power right those are the reasons typically people murder thieve steal backstab people um versus religion not to say that nobody does it for religious purposes but typically it's for a purely secular reason um so interesting that he has the kind of objections that he does when he himself um makes assertions without evidence i agree Sorry, how often does it really begin with premise one you're more likely to hear a narrative or a story some kind of account of an experience indeed the most high-profile conversion, perhaps of this millennium, happened just a few weeks ago when the fifth horsewoman of new atheism, Ayan Hirsi Ali, announced in a long and celebrated essay that she had embraced Christianity. I was far from the first reviewer to notice something rather peculiar about this publication. That is, its somewhat conspicuous lack of arguments for the existence of God or for the truth of Christianity. Instead, she devoted the entire thing to talking about culture. She talked about the looming threats of Russia and China, of global Islamism, of wokeism. I think that an essay which mentions Osama bin Laden, Vladimir Putin, and indeed Professor Richard Dawkins exactly as many times as it mentions Jesus Christ might tell us that we're looking at a conversion that is at best insensitive to the truth claims of religious belief, and instead an attempt to escape, or a result, I should say, of a desire to escape certain unfortunate social realities. We pause there, too. Uh-huh. I, <laughs> I prepared a little something. Obviously, I wish I had more time. But I looked at a quick Pew Research study from 2014, and I don't think uh, Alex O'Connor has a postgraduate degree yet. I think he only has like an undergraduate in theology and philosophy. But um, from their study of 6,000 adults with postgraduate degrees, showed that 52% believe in God with absolute certainty, 22% who believe in God with, uh, are fairly certain in that, and 7% who are not too certain but believe in God, which leaves less than 20% of those with postgraduate degrees um, who are either atheistic or agnostic. So, like, immediately, like, right there, it's just a, I don't know what kind of logical fallacy that is, a red herring or something, but <laughs> just referring to this one, he has 10 minutes to speak at Oxford, and he's bringing up this anecdote for some reason. I'm not sure what he's trying to prove or if he genuinely thinks it, it's impactful to the people. But then you can also point to people like John Lennox, William Lane Craig, uh, Vern Poitras, and each of them has like four or five advanced degrees, each of them. And they all believe in God and argue for God and such. And so obviously it's not an intellectual issue. Right. And I think ironically here to do exactly what we were just prepping you, he's trying to, to reframe the conversation to say that um, it wouldn't, isn't it interesting, he says, that the primary defense of God is via narratives. People just tell stories about their experience with God as opposed to logical defenses of God. But like you just said, Theodore, the primary apologetic people for Christianity are typically very studied men who do logically argue for God. And isn't it ironic that he's saying that he's poo-pooing narratives as a means of proving God 
while using a narrative about Ayan Hirsi Ali to try to hurt religion and Christianity specifically. So he himself must believe in the power of narratives because he isn't logically arguing against God here. He's just using a narrative. <laughs> He's trying to pull emotional strings, which is very, very classic debate rhetoric. But specifically, it's very classic atheist debate rhetoric. Um, I think it is undeniable that in formal debate, atheists get way more emotional and push way more on emotions than typically Christian debaters do. Not, that's not to say that Christian advocates aren't more emotional in general because you think about street preachers and, and family members and whoever else that would be more passionate in real life. But as far as like academics go, atheist academics are super emotional and very much rely on narrative, not logical proofs. So, um, he he says he says that that Christians majorly rely on narratives. He not only uses a narrative himself. He he also is going against the the viewed evidence, especially at a place like Oxford, where Christians are always looking to make logical proofs. Atheists are typically doing a why bad things happen. Ah, God must not be real emotionally, and which you know he's about to do as well. So I think ironic that he uses a narrative to uh, complain about narratives. That is where God appeared in a dream to Joseph or to Zachariah. Uh, it seems that the president of Russia appeared in a nightmare to Ayan Hirsi Ali and also endowed her with a skill that I'm unable of, which is to adopt a belief simply because of its political or existential convenience. And again, perhaps my desire for my philosophical convictions to be you know, true is just too high uh, a margin to demand. What I really want to ask is whether this should be any kind of surprise, this approach, I mean. I would say on political convenience, if he means that it's popular to be a Christian uh, across the world, I don't, I don't know where he's getting that from. In many places, it's very unpopular to be a, a Christian who actually takes the faith in Christ seriously, not just nominally. Well, Ayan Hirsi Ali was arguing that it was practical to be a Christian as well because of its defense against the forces of darkness in this world today, i.e. Vladimir Putin and Islam and all the other forces out there. Um, and so he's saying he's not willing to take a practical defense against those threats because he cares too much about truth. But I think this asks the question, it begs the question, what are his standards for truth? What are his standards for having his current belief falsifiable? Because I think the biggest fallacy that every atheist, I mean, there's probably ones out there that don't take this fallacy, but most every atheist that I've ever seen do apologetics says that the burden of proof is on the Christian and that they, the atheist, just happens to not believe in God and that you have to prove your God to them, but they are taking a, a positive stance that God does not exist or that they don't believe God exists or they're not convinced God exists or whatever position they take, whether agnostic or atheist, that is a positive position. They likewise should be able to positively prove their position uh, because when you live like an atheist, you live like an atheist. Like it, it, it is not a neutral position. It is an active position to deny the um, culture around you, to deny the creation around you. Like this is an active position. So they cannot play defense. They must play um, offense because they think offense is easier. But they have to, in, in reality, they must play defense because they are defending a position. So that being said, this is, this is debate tactics here their view has to be falsifiable. And they always point to religion and say that, that religious people are irrational because they will never accept being proven wrong. They will never accept evidence to the contrary of their current belief, which is that God exists. Meanwhile, they have no falsifiable bar. 
some atheists will come up with one, but I will tell you that anybody, atheist or non-atheist, has a tendency to move the goalposts when something contradicts their current opinion. Right? If I say that Trump is the greatest president ever, and then you show me his sex tape or something like that, I will probably make an excuse. Well, that was just one time, or is that even Trump? Or, I'll try to defend him somehow. Um, atheists, likewise, will some occasionally put a goalpost out there and say, in the 1800s, for example, German atheists said that if Christianity was true, well, then we'd expect that Babylon was a real city. But Babylon's not a real city. It's totally mythical. So Christianity is false. If we if we discovered that Babylon was true, well, then maybe Christianity is true. Well, of course, archaeologists did find Babylon. It is true. There's tons of evidence that proves it's true, right? And those same atheists in Germany, did they convert to Christianity? No, they just moved the goalposts. They said, well, Babylon might be real, but Jesus isn't real, right? They just moved on to the next thing. So I would ask Alex or any other atheist that's going to argue that um, you have that they they don't have the burden of proof. You have the burden of proof to ask them what are your goalposts, right? So we can plant them in the ground and say if we prove this level of proof, will you convert? And if they say no, well their view is unfalsifiable. Whereas Christianity, maybe uniquely or at least uh, rarely among religions, is falsifiable. And Sebastian, maybe you can say why. <gasps> that's my cue. I do have it locked and loaded from 1 Corinthians 15. Please listen carefully, especially if you're not a Christian or even if you're a Christian. This is how Christianity is logical. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But there is, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those, who, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. And there you have it. It's not the only way we we consider Christianity falsifiable, but at least a way we would is, and it's strictly from the Bible there, is if you can reasonably prove that Christ never rose from the dead, a historical event, it should be at least addressable by evidence. Um, if Christ never rose from the dead, then all of Christianity is false. The whole premise of Christians rise from the dead as well is false. And, and ergo, you've won the argument. Will Alex set goalposts for himself? No. Um, does he? I don't believe he does, even in his videos about why he doesn't believe in God. And I would say the typical atheist approach about setting their falsifiable standards are twofold. One, it's I would need to personally experience a miracle, which, frankly, if an atheist personally experienced a miracle, I don't expect them to convert, typically, because they will, like um, Christopher Hitchens said, on his deathbed, he had cancer. He said, if you see me convert to Christ in my deathbed, you will know that the cancer finally got to my brain, i.e. atheists that witness miracles won't convert in theory because they will think they, that they themselves have suddenly become falsifiable because their, their belief in not God is so strong that even when they witness evidence to the contrary, they think that they are failing, not that the world is against their their atheistic belief. So I would argue that typically the miracles aren't going to convince atheists, but if they say that they will, I'd want to strictly define what classifies as a, what they classify as a miracle. Would they classify um, pouring a glass of milk and the milk remaining in the gallon cart a miracle, like in you know, a Hanukkah miracle with milk? 
maybe, maybe not. Maybe they think that there's some um, natural world explanation for that. Or would they demand supernatural um, intervention that's personal? Like, I want to be teleported to the moon and back. The other That would be a miracle. And so they say that's the bar they need to believe in God. The other question we have to ask is, in a world where God exists, would he do that to you? Is that a reasonable ask of uh, God to have him do that to you? Is that something that would occur if God exists? And we would, of course, argue, no, God rarely executes miracles. He built the earth to operate in its natural way. That's the designed way he has it work. And so typically it designs, it works the way he designed it in the natural way, the way we observe it. And so just like if you were arguing that the sun does not exist, and if it existed, I, I will only believe the sun exists if I burst into flame. While it's technically possible for you to burst into flame because of the sun, it is not the normal course of business for you to burst into flame because of the sun, and the sun still exists. So you can't ask God to do something extraordinary to prove that he exists, because in a world where God exists, he's not beholden to do something extraordinary for you. So all that to say, <laughs> I would love for Alex to come up with some way that atheism or agnosticism is falsifiable. And if so, I want to be very specific on exactly what he means by that, because I would not want him to move the goalpost. Just like we as Christians should move the goalposts on how we would determine whether or not Christ really raised from the dead or any number of um, anti-God uh, pitches. Yeah. We could also, do we want to address like, what some people might say, like uh, their objections to Jesus rising from the dead, or you just want to go on? Uh, name like one. It's not really the topic of the video, but might as well name one because so, people are thinking them. Okay. So I was thinking Matthew 28, because I know a cult that thinks um, the disciples basically took Jesus's body and then uh, buried it somewhere else or disposed of it in some proper way. Mm -hmm. But we find this right in Matthew 28 uh, where an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. Uh, his clothes were white as snow. The guards, because the Jews uh, had like Roman guards um, positioned at the tomb so that the body would not be stolen um, because they thought, oh, they're going to try to trick us or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but the guards were so afraid uh, of the angel that they shook and became like dead men. And let's see. Um, and then the angel appeared to the women and said, he's, uh, he's not here. He is risen. Uh, Jesus is not here. Jesus is risen. And so going a little further, uh, while the women were on their way to the disciples, some of the guards went to the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away, while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So they're still good with it, even though the evidence kind of points to the contrary, i.e., uh, like all the disciples willingly dying mm -hmm. um, through preaching and peacefully preaching uh, the gospel of Jesus rising from the dead. And then, obviously, uh, Paul's conversion. That's another miracle. And Paul's the one who writes this 1 Corinthians 15 that uh, Sebastian read. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Say other things, too, but... 
Yeah, I mean, there's many defenses for the rising of Christ from the dead, and there's many objections to it, but um, rest assured, we have videos on it, and other people have videos on it that are better than ours as far as defending the fact that Christ really did rise from the dead his historically, scientifically, right, uh, archaeologically, um, just the impact that Christ rising from the dead had on history is undeniable, right? Like uh, Alex O'Connor sits here in a tuxedo in Oxford, all of which was created by Christian men, by Christian civilization. Oxford was made as a, a Christian university. So all these things would point um, to the contrary of his belief that Jesus either wasn't real or is a mythicism or wasn't important because here he's impacted all of history, including what Alex, where Alex is speaking and what kind of clothes he's wearing. There is some recognition even amongst the religious that this is at least in part what religion does, what religion is. It provides some kind of unifying ethic to suppress the more depraved elements of our human nature. Evelyn Waugh was once uh, asked how he reconciled his private hedonism and gluttony. He was accused of being rude and, and self-indulgent, how he reconciles this with his professed Christianity. He accepted the charge and simply said, can you imagine how much worse I would be if I wasn't a Catholic? Fair enough. Um, I think that I'm far from the first to suggest that religion is, in essence, nothing more than a mimetic entity that serves some kind of social purpose like this, that's what it's for, but isn't actually true. And, I'm and we would categorically deny those who say they are religious, but say that that religion is their religion, right? They don't believe it's true, but they believe it's useful. We would categorically say those people are illogical and evil, and even though they are conforming to the law that we require, they actually aren't. And I think that's the biggest... Mm -hmm. um, biggest objection I have to those who would say that religion is purely practical is that Christianity also requires that you do everything out of a love for God. That's the first commandment of Christianity and Judaism, for that matter, um, that you love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and then you love your neighbors yourself, and that those two things are the, the primary um, rules for all of life, and that out of them come all the commandments. So if you don't actually believe in God, you don't love God. Jordan Peterson, when he says he's a Christian, but he doesn't believe that God is real, he just believes the tenets of Christianity are like good to do and that they come out of the human psyche, that is a fundamental denial of Christianity. You are not, you may be religious, I suppose, but you are not a Christian. Um, so we, we would deny that kind of defense of Christianity. So I don't think cosmic skeptic, Alex, don't think that we are holding to religion purely being practical. We believe that, of course, it is practical because it's true, but we primarily believe it's true, and that's why it works. The practicality is just the bonus, in other words. Yeah, and it's evidence that it's true, right? Like mm -hmm. that it conforms to the way the world should work. Glad to hear that at least one member of the opposition this evening seems to agree with me. I'm not sure if you'll see it that way too, ladies and gentlemen. But I won't say that I know this is the case. Of course, I, I can't do so. I will simply ask a question of you. What would you expect to see if God existed and all of this was being supervised? What would you expect to see if God did not exist? We, I think ultimately we'd expect absolute chaos, no life, because we've yet to even show a mechanism for life to exist without a creator. Um, I'd argue any atheist should look up a biogenesis, which is the creation of life from no life, and it is... Um, wild. There is there is no um, even cohesive theory, let alone proven theory or worked out theory that shows how life would have originated. There There is zero. Ones you learned in science class aren't even theories. They, they say that uh, RNA was created from a lightning bolt that hit certain chemicals. One, the chemicals wouldn't have existed at the time, so they had to modify Earth's early atmosphere. But two, all you have is RNA. That that's not life. It's not even close to life. It's not even it's not it's a component of, of life, but it's not even close to self-replicating life. I remember being in an evolutionary biology class in college and they tried to argue a form of abiogenesis that was 
it's like the RNA got created and then it got stuck in lava tubes and then lipids that form um, it naturally on very rare occasions as well were able to make little bubbles that captured the RNA and now you have bubbles of lipids surrounding RNA and still you don't have the life like still there's this huge gap it's like okay it kind of looks like it could be a cell but there's no organelles and the RNA isn't DNA so it rapidly deteriorates and that still you don't have life so there there is not even a single suggestion for how abiogenesis happens and yet he says what would you expect if god was real i'd expect there to be life and for humans to be the top of the food chain and for us to have moral dilemmas because of sin and i would expect there to be suffering for those who reject christianity and uh benefits for societies that accept christianity because it's the way god made the world to be and he says that you'll be better off if you follow his commandments which, which is the way the world works. So I'd say pretty proven as far as the evidence goes and how the world should work. A stable earth, stable world, the, the physics keep on running because God sustains them as he promises in, in Colossians. Um, and here the world's morals work based on God's commandments, that God's commandments are good and make societies flourish. And when you disobey them, the societies do not flourish. And if you want to look up more abiogenesis stuff, look up Dr. James Tour. He's a brilliant man who talks all about that and has one kind of debate about it. Yeah. And mind if I mention a C.S. Lewis quote? Go right ahead. I read this today in God in the Dock, which is just like a compilation of some of his essays. So he's talking about basically uh, evolution, monotheism, uh, dualism. Um, so he writes in agreement with philosopher Dr. Cyril Jode that neither, uh, quote, neither mechanism nor emergent evolution will hold water. We must choose in the long run between some monotheistic philosophy like the Christian and uh, some such dualism, end quote. But dualism fails, as he mentions, metaphysically and morally. Um, thus, we find ourselves with monotheism where good is the original and evil is mere perversion of it. And you talk about that for a long time too, but right. don't have time for it. And well, maybe he's going to get into evil, so maybe we talk about it then. Mm -hmm. What would you expect the world to look like? How would you expect life to have evolved? And if we assume the alternative hypothesis, that is atheism, materialism, that is that the world we find ourselves in is just an amoral arena of accidentally existing organisms competing in an endless struggle for survival, what... The organisms wouldn't even exist in a... In a purely materials world um the, there's no mechanism explained for how they would all the rest of the universe has no life so we can definitively say that it is a unique freak that we have organisms to begin with this would not be expected you would not expect the arena the amoral arena he calls it of, of species fighting for survival if there was no god when we know about god and we know about the fall adam and eve bringing sin into the world then there's a reason to expect species to be fighting for survival to god God giving a mechanism for those species to benefit from this fight. And for God, ultimately, there's a quote from Romans, Romans 8, 28, which says, for all things work together for the good of those who love God, for those called according to his purpose. So in this way, even suffering, the, the, the brutal realities of this life in this fallen world, um, benefit us, the Christian, and even benefit the species that, that end up hurting, right? The weak species die off is a benefit to that animal group, to that, that species, to its proliferation on earth. This is a mechanism designed by God. So no, in an atheist, amoralist universe, I would not expect creatures to get better as they die off. I would expect them to 
entropy and die and, and explode, right? To every piece of life on earth to die because it could not adapt to a sudden change. That's what I would expect. But what we actually see is life finding a way to survive even past huge cataclysmic events. Volcanoes going off, meteors hitting the earth, floods over the earth, yet life still persists because of mechanisms created by God. So no, again, I reiterate it again for a third time, in an atheistic universe, I would not expect natural selection to work as well as it does. Only in a God-designed universe would I expect creatures to get better under difficulty, not worse. What would we expect to find? And what do we find? A system of natural selection which explains the origin of species on planet Earth. It does not. It does not just cause or bring about, but relies upon suffering and death. Survival of the fittest is the same thing as the death and destruction of the unfit. 99% plus of all of the species, species, let alone animals, that have ever inhabited this planet have been brutally wiped from existence. And for what? For our development? It seems that unimaginable, indescribable, and seemingly inexplicable suffering is embedded into the very mechanism by which I'm told God decided to create human beings. Apparently it's inexplicable suffering, although he just described its purpose in making better species and natural selection. Baffling, mind-boggling that he's decided to take this position. He's, he's just parroting it from his, his ex-atheist, right? His other philosophers he's talked to. But the position that natural selection, one of the most amazing mechanisms of the natural universe, is random and evil? What? It makes better species, right? When the cold comes in and it kills off 99% of lizards and the one lizard that can adapt to, to cold survives, it makes that species, a lizard kind, stronger and able to adapt, right? That's a good, it's, it's in the name natural selection, it is explicable, it is explainable. Like the explanation for why it's happening is that it makes the species stronger. That, <laughs> it's just been explained. And not only can I explain it here philosophically, it's explained in the Bible by biblical writers, by the Lord himself. He talks about why suffering happens. He says it's for the good of those who believe in him, for those called according to his purpose. He says he wipes out the wicked because of their wickedness, which would be an explanation for the wicked destruction of nations like communist China right now, or the nations that have been wiped out in the past, the nations that the Mongols destroyed, or Timur the, the Red destroyed, right? The, these evil men who destroy wicked nations are actually doing the work of God to destroy uh, wicked people. So the, the suffering that we see in the earth is all purposeful, even to those with the untrained eye, let alone those to the trained eye. And so I would hope that that cosmic skeptic here, Alex O'Connor, would be better at realizing that the suffering that we see on Earth is even explicable from the atheist perspective, let alone those who believe that suffering has a higher purpose. So why is he asking us why suffering happens? Like, he even has a reason for why suffering happens. Of course we do. And you have an explanation for suffering as well, don't you? Some text you want to talk about? Yes, after, after your theater. Okay. I was just going to mention First Peter 2, uh, we find, uh, so it says, God, uh, we find favor when suffering unjustly. Mm -hmm. um, for what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example uh, for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not re revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Um, and then Romans 9, that's not, you, were you going to bring up Isaiah, Sebastian? Yes. Okay, so that, then I'll just mention Romans 9. So First Peter 2, that just gives an example of what suffering's good for us. Mm -hmm. Now, Romans 9 it is glorifying to God um, 
because it says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience uh, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared before beforehand for glory. Indeed. So that's just for the good of man, for the good of God. Mm-hmm. Indeed. On that note, theater, sometimes, and most likely someone like Alex would say that, well, if God can show this mercy, why doesn't he do anything about the evil? Mm-hmm. Why is he so complacent? Well, number one, you wouldn't... You don't want to fall in the hands of the in the angry hands of the living God mm-hmm. because the punishment is indeed terrible and just, but nonetheless very unpleasant. There have been times in which God has intervened directly in human affairs, and it is to indeed destroy wicked nations. On the note of Babylon, reading from Isaiah, a prophecy against Babylon, God says through the prophet, I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make people scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Going down. Against, this is against Babylon again. See, I will stir up against them the Medes, who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians, will be overthrown by God, like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lift in through all generations. There no nomads will pitch their tents. There no shepherds will rest their flock. So, has that ever happened? There's a reason why Babylon wasn't founded until very recently, because it was covered by sand. It was a pile of rubble and ash. And guess what? The Medes, the Persian Empire, would become the Persian Empire. They'd come in and destroy the Babylonian Empire. Yet, who is the one who is bringing the Medes, the Persians, to undo the evil of the Babylonian Empire? God. God uses human means to mm-hmm. accomplish his purposes. And you see that all over scripture. And I can even go to Isaiah 10, in which before he uses the king of Assyria, who himself will be punished for being arrogant and not honoring God. He uses the king of Assyria to punish Israel for human sacrifice, or disobeying the law, throwing throwing out the, uh, the Old Testament, mm-hmm. marrying Jezebel, you know, all, all, all messed up things that, they, that the Israelites did. And he uses human means to accomplish his purposes. God does indeed deal both justly throughout history and also he tends actually to just let things go and play out because if he indeed intervenes, it doesn't feel very pleasant. Right. And if so, if we say the Lord punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous, his title of this portion of the speech here is what would you expect it to look like if the Lord existed? We'd expect the wicked to die earlier and the just to live longer. And if you look at sins, at vices, if you look at murderers, way lower life expectancy rate than non-murderers. A lot of reasons for that, right? But ultimately that is the reality is that murderers die faster than non-murderers. In the same way, smokers, gluttons die faster than non-gluttons, non-smokers, right? Or thinking gluttons 
people who eat too much, right? Smokers, people who smoke too much. It's a form of gluttony. Um, same goes for any vice you can think of. Lust. Prostitutes die way faster. Johns die way faster. People who go to gay orgies die way faster. You can look at the stats. It proves that across the world, across every culture, across every nation. Look at wicked nations. Is Nazi Germany still around? No, they've been wiped off the face of the earth. Was wicked Babylon still around? No, they've been wiped off the face of the earth. Do wicked people stay around? Scripture says they're here today, but they're gone tomorrow. They go quickly. And this state of the world would testify to this. The world has gotten better and better and better since Christ. It has its ups and downs, of course. The wicked still reign and they die quickly. The Nazis still came about and reigned, but they died quickly. Their regime is gone and now it's forgotten. It's in the history books. It's not even, not even a movement today. And so... This world looks like God is rewarding righteousness and punishing wicked. And so when the atheist asks, why is there still evil in the world if God is good? Look what God does to evil. (laughs) He raises it up just to smush it. He does it faster and faster as his kingdom spreads further and further. And countries become more and more Christian. Mm -hmm. So I testify that the world looks like God exists in the way he punishes wickedness and rewards righteousness. I'm not saying this can't be explained on theism. Of course, I can't say that. You could say that this is all part of some grand plan of Jobian proportion and its unintelligibility. Maybe there's some kind of compensation. It's perfectly intelligible. ...in the afterlife. Maybe dogs do go to heaven after all, sure. I'm just asking you what you would actually expect to be the case. I think that we wouldn't expect to see anything like what I've just described if we assume that there is a benevolent invigilator overseeing the process. However, if we... No. First of all, you're ignoring his benevolence in this current system, but also you're assuming what a benevolent dictator would do. Um, you, you think that a benevolent uh, being would, what, have no suffering? who are you to, to think so, right? The the benevolent creator of all has things work this way and you see his hand in benevolence here. So you think that suffering is bad and we would say suffering is actually better than no suffering. We say that this design of God is actually better than had he given us no suffering. So you see the wickedness, we see the wickedness being made good. And that's, it's what we expect. It's what the Bible talks about expecting. So it's not even me defending um, outside of the Bible, the Bible's truth. No, the Bible says to expect these things, to expect to see the wicked, but then see them gone soon. That's it's what I expect. And look, it pans out in the world. Assume atheism. Not only do we come to explain this phenomenon, but in my view, we also come to expect it. If I'm wrong, however, if the truth of theism is indeed as plain and graspable as many on the opposition would doubtless like to suggest this evening, then I must ask why religious belief has traditionally, if not essentially delusional in essence, relied so heavily on, if you like, non-rational modes of convincing. A sign as sure as they come of delusional belief is an inability to muster and a resistance against rational defense of that belief, especially in the face of challenge. I'm going to list a couple of state atheism countries, and you tell me if they if they uh, allow for rational debate. Communist China, communist Russia, Nazi Germany. Yeah, are these nations you think of as tolerant, tolerating rational debate? No, they they plow into delusion, right? It's a different kind of delusion. It's not a delusion that says God is in the sky. It's a delusion that says that if you question if there's more than two genders, you get destroyed in the modern day secular world. Or if the Jew is um, a person, you get destroyed by the state, right? That's what Nazi Germany would do. Or in communist Russia, you get destroyed if you question whether or not the communist party is inevitably going to take over the world. If you question that fact, you are named a traitor to the state and destroyed via violence, being pernicious violence, the most violent regimes in history destroy you. So you tell me, Alex, which regime, what philosophy when it takes over nation states is more violent, the atheist or the Christian? Even the Muslim has less violence. And I aspire to destroy Islam. Islam should be wiped off the face of the planet. A wicked regime 
is better than atheism. So uh, your conclusions are very much assumed that Christians, that religious people in general, are more violent than non-religious people. It purely has to do with who has the power of the state, because the power of the state is the only one that has the power to execute. And when atheists have the sword to execute, they execute, and, and viciously, right? You think about the only nations that are secular today that don't they don't wield the sword to execute are those who allow rampant wickedness throughout their their countries sweden germany the uk these days right lets murders go unpunished they let rape go unpunished they let thieving go unpunished i think of american cities that allow the same thing if you aren't wielding the sword in justice you're not wielding the sword at all and you're letting um, in injustice reign so which is better i don't know um, but it's certainly not a better world to live in with an atheist state than a religious state and most evidence when the threat or enforcement, indeed, of suppression or physical violence, uh, violence is substituted in its place. That is the place of rational argument. And this hardly needs explication. Just 600 feet from the door of this chamber, there's an easily missable cross on the floor of Broad Street, which marks the spot where three bishops of the Church of England were burned at the stake, not even for being the wrong religion, but so close, the wrong denomination, the wrong interpretation of the words. Doctrinal disputes like this have a long and violent history within the religious tradition, and I think it's worth asking why that's the case. Oh, you think that the Son, you think that the Son proceeds from the Father alone? not the Father and the Holy Spirit. Oh, you're about to find out as you meet your maker. <laughs> Wherever religious authorities have had the political power to do so, I would say, and found the threat of otherworldly hellfire to have somewhat lost its efficacy on certain people, then it provides, or they provide, shall we say, a corporeal simulacrum of this, bringing the flames into our own veil of tears. He says that living in a Christian country where he's not being burned at the stake, what he's saying, speaking in a Christian university against God. I can't think of a more contrasting position to say that Christians are inherently violent, and that we're always destroying them and not allowing for rational debate. Where I think the only countries that allow for rational debate against Christianity are Christian countries. The irony is not lost on me. I hope it's not lost on Alex, if he rewatches his own position here. Providing a very worldly inferno to ready the heretic for the inferno that's to come in Hades, reducing heretics to literal ashes in the full view of anybody else who might have the temerity to, compare, to, to question or to challenge the authority and compassion of the church. Why might a religious tradition, which I'm told is balanced upon reason and provability, evolve such a knee-jerk mortal resistance to freedom of thought? Religion doesn't that mankind is wicked. So yes, do I doubt that there are wicked executions done in the name of God? No, absolutely there are wicked executions wrongly done in the name of the God, and there's righteous executions properly done in the name of God. What I would argue is that it's a human condition, not a religious condition, because the Nazis said the exact same thing, right? They killed the Jews, not because of religious conviction. I mean, a pseudo-religion, but really just a state believed that the Jews were a legion society and they needed to be destroyed. And so they burned them to literal ashes as heretics. Um, with, with no logic, or you can question that. It'd be against the regime if you question that. So it's the exact same things that you know medieval Catholicism might have done, except it was in the name of state atheism. So the argument that it's unique that religions abuse power to wipe out people they don't agree with, and therefore God is inherently delusional because only delusional people don't take arguments against them, is itself delusional. It does not look at the historical facts. Of course, in our modern age, where the state is no longer the principal auxiliary of religious violence. I, of course, understand that that's the case. This is something that happened hundreds of years ago. Now that ignoble mantle is taken up instead by individual religious fanatics who cannot and will not be deterred by the morality of their fellow creatures or, indeed, by the laws of their country because there is no legislation written by any person of any time that could even count one iota against the dictates of the supernatural creator of the universe, access to whose precise and exacting will is, of course, only a delusion when it's somebody else's God, when it's the wrong God. 
If that's not the case, then not only is this belief in God and access to his will not delusionary, but now, I'm told, is actually a prerequisite for reason, for science, for morality, all of the noble pursuits that humanity entertains. This despite the fact that most of the important developments historically in all of these areas have regularly been made by dissidents who subverted the clerical authoritarianism of the very religious traditions that now wish to claim these developments as their own. Well, I mean, I can think of even just scientists that were Christian, but okay. Back to the, to the executions of, of um, heretics. The reason why that was so important was if you, or even people from Christians going against uh, Muslims, it's not a, so much a delusion of, it's okay when my religion says it, but it's not okay when their religion doesn't say it. Because if the Christian God is real, the Muslim God cannot be real. It's a logical consequence, right? Likewise, if Allah, as described in the Quran, is real, then Jesus Christ is not God. So they, by that system, which is actually logical, you know, in defense, I can believe we're very friendly to Islam tonight, but yeah, to the Islam's defense, it is logical in that sense that if Allah is the creator of the universe and has laid out you know, morality and goodness as described in the Quran, Christianity is a false religion. Therefore, you shouldn't take Christianity seriously. I mean, right. That makes sense. Yep. Same with Buddhism. If Buddhism is true, you should not take Christianity seriously or Islam seriously. So it's, it's not that difficult. Yeah, it's not. So it's not just crazed delusion that says that. Oh, my my belief is true, and your guys isn't, and I'm going to kill you. It's it's the logical consequence of the kinds of beliefs that we hold. That's so. You're arguing that that's evil, I suppose. Um, but you yourself militate for truth, and you do so on what grounds, right? Delusion. It sounds like again, ironically, in the very beginning of the speech, he says that. Uh, delusional beliefs rely on narrative as opposed to logical proofs and yet he entirely his, his whole speech is based off of emotional narratives narratives about people being burned to the stake narratives about Ayun, Ayun, Hershey whatever the lady who converted to from uh, Islam to atheism and atheism to Christianity now um, his entire speech is built on narratives narratives about evolution and about species being wiped out and how wicked that would be if God was real I don't see any logical proofs here. I see a lot of emotion that makes us think that if God is evil, I'm just going to decide not to believe in him, which is, I ultimately think what Alex is believing in his heart of hearts, based on the way he's arguing, at least, is that he doesn't like God. God's evil. And therefore, he's not going to worship God, which, hey, if God is real, I would expect you to have that position because that's what the Bible says, that people who reject God believe God is evil. They don't want to follow God. So that's what I expect you to do is to call God evil. That you're playing right into the hands of the, the word of the Lord. Uh, this is this is not an unexpected behavior by those who hate God. The Bible talks about those who hate God. They that says the fool says in his heart there is no God, and we are witnessing one today. I pray, Alex, that you come to Christ. I know that I was not always a Christian. I know that most Christians were not always Christians, and so we pray that you would come to Christ. It's only through the power of God that you can. But when God chooses you, you have no option. You come to Christ. So I pray that like. Hershey Ali, your contemporary compatriot atheist, that you be drawn to God inexplicably, except that God will it. Not scandalous. I, I feel like agree. I think I we uh, touched this, touched on this a little bit last week, but he seems to be judging Christianity by a few people who claim to be Christians, or he seems to be judging Christianity be Christianity by Peter, who, or when he cut off one of those uh, soldiers' ears. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but he's not judging Christianity by Christ. And that's how you judge Christianity. Or that's how you should judge Christianity yeah. by becoming a Christian by following Christ. I agree. You should ultimately judge it based on its rule set, not those who follow it, because those who follow it will imperfectly follow it. But if you look at its rule set, you can determine and, and interpret exactly what being a Christian is defined as. Just as you would probably say that you're a secular humanist, um, and there are many who said they were secular humanists that, that you don't agree with, right? Because they believed in eugenics or whatever else, some beliefs that you don't believe in. So, um, hold we want you to hold to the philosophy of christianity what the truth of christianity not necessarily how people play it out but i honestly i'll defend the way christians have played it out for years i think christian society has been better um, for two thousand years now than all the surrounding societies so even though we disagree with the way medieval catholics um played out their belief as far as how they burned heretics and their standards and some of the traditions they brought in that we don't believe are true in christianity today that society was still better than Islamic societies. It was still better than Confucian China. It was still better than Animist Africa. It was the best society on earth. So as we progress, we're getting better and better. But you stand on the shoulders of giants, Alex, when you say that if everybody was just atheist, there'd be a better world. And really, it's because you live in a Christian society that you're even able to be an atheist. And because society is generally built on Christian law, it's a good society. And you think, as you said, that you think it's dissidents who have made the world good. You think it's dissidents to clerical tradition that have made scientific discoveries, when in fact it is adherence to truth that has made for good society. And ultimately truth is Christianity, which is why the West is the center of civilization. And as the West gets less and less Christian, it gets less and less the center of the world because it's getting less and less rewarded for its righteousness. Again, the, what would I expect if Christ was real? If God was real, expect the world to work in a way that God rewarded righteousness and punished wickedness, and that's what we see. I have to do this. When you start saying Christianity being better and, and Confucian China, <laughs> the reason why the emperor of China in the Tang Dynasty allowed Christianity to come in per his per his words summarized, this will be really good for my people, better than the nonsense of Buddhism and Manichaeism that's that's spreading on my country. So mm -hmm. if a Confucian emperor can notice this Clearly, there's something good about the religion. Right. And this isn't just an argument from practicality. It's an argument that if God um, works the way we believe him to, right, rewarding righteousness and that Christianity is righteousness, we'd expect Christianity to be practically good. So it's not just that it's practically good that we believe it. It's, it's evidence that it is true, that it is practically good. You'll agree, I should say. Again, I can simply ask you what best explains this psychological condition. Might this suppressive and sensorial historical attitude, which seems essentially tied to the history of religious thought, be compatible with the truth of religious claims? Of course, absolutely. Is it better explained by an inability to provide serious and conclusive rational defenses of those beliefs? Maybe. Might this also explain the uh, characteristic taboo on the criticism of people's religious belief that survives with us in many ways to this day? Perhaps also, I'm not sure. Might this also explain why faith, as we've already heard, that is belief without evidence, just reflect on that for a moment. On that note, though, it is a fair criticism that there are many Christians out there, especially your many charismatic and fundamentalist friends, that the moment they feel their beliefs are being questioned, they immediately start pulling out the guns and become aggressive against you. That's not right. And even scripture calls us to a higher standard that be ready to give a defense for, for your faith. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean <laughs> pull out your guns and start attacking Home people. Home defense, yes. Yeah. It means give a merciful, logical reason for why you believe what you believe. So on that point, yes, 
Christians can do a better job at defending that. However, let's look now, as we've been going over, at atheist totalitarian countries that have taken over. If you ask, if you were to question Stalin, if you were not to clap for as long as you were expected to in one of his speeches, you would not be seen around in Moscow for much longer. So, mm-hmm. same in Nazi Germany or in communist China. Or even just think about regimes today. If you, if you um, call all the atheist regimes that have ever existed anomalies, and instead you look at Sweden, modern-day Sweden, modern-day USA, which is largely governed by secular people, even if the United States is predominantly religious, the people who lead the United States are not, you point to them and look at how they deal with those who disagree with them. It's not logical debate that's being shown in the debate platforms of Joe Biden or even Donald Trump, who would be we'd say affiliates himself with Christianity, but isn't really Christian, just like Joe Biden is absolutely not a Catholic, even though he claims to be. They ostracize people without without reason debate. They have a belief. They push it dogmatically. Um, they support it. So, you know, they support the climate change agenda. They support socialism agenda, but they never allow for questioning of it. And so that's how they deal with it today. The only difference between us and Stalinist Russia is that Stalin and Russia in general was already allowing for the state to use a sword. Um, and it was Christians in the United States and the UK and Germany and wherever else that we have nice atheism today that disallowed the sword. So if, if Christians had not disallowed the sword in Germany and the United States and the UK, it would be being used by the state to kill those who disagreed with the current flavor of atheism. So this isn't really a debate between religiosity and atheism. It's really a debate between should the state be able to use the sword, which is a debate in and of itself, right? I think ultimately, again, Alex is falling into the exact trap that he claimed that he wasn't falling into, which is he has not logically defended uh, his belief in atheism at all or even agnosticism. He's only used narratives, emotional narratives, to attack um, God's goodness. He hasn't even attacked God's existence. He's just questioned whether or not the people who who believe in God are moral and therefore does that make you want to believe it, right? Somebody acting delusional means that God is false is what he is positing here. I would say... In contrary, if we're just going to use anecdotes, the most emotional people that I've talked to when I question their base beliefs are secularists. I remember in college, the most heated debates I had were with secularists. They they were the ones freaking out because because it's hard because God's a hard reality and they they're extra passionate. I think because they think they're the minority, so there's probably some passion in there just purely from thinking they're the minority, but. The most passionate anecdotal evidence that I have is, is from atheists. Atheists, the most impassioned opponents against um, my religion, not Mormons, not Jehovah's Witnesses, not even Muslims. Honestly, Muslims have been like some of the chillest uh, opponents that I've had, at least in the university, which um, that's just anecdotal, but that's what I've seen. Yeah. Second into my end. All right. Yeah. Faith is not belief without evidence also. Yeah. Um, faith is consideration of the evidence, then choosing which claims have the most explanatory power, logic, meaning, beauty, adherence to actuality. Um, and Alex O'Connor is just being a cosmic skeptic, <laughs> which is a belief in really nothing, which is a choice. And he has more confidence. He, is, he has more faith. He is with faith more in nothing and something mm-hmm. and being a skeptic usually entails that you're always going to move the goalposts right you're always on the negative i i've lost my train of thought i had a thought now i've lost it oh, well, well. 
<laughs> they might also explain why this is proposed as a virtue and indeed the foundation of belief in God. Blessed, after all, are those who believe without saying, uh, without seeing. I don't know. It's not really for someone like myself who, strictly speaking, is, is an agnostic. It's not really for me to say, but I it's cop out, huge cop out to say you're agnostic and therefore you don't have to defend your belief. You still have to. Your belief is agnosticism and therefore you have to defend your belief. So don't cop out like that. I, I remember what I was going to say. Um, a lot of atheists and they get Christians to agree with this. I don't know why. I think they quote a particular verse from scripture, which I think is taken out of context in these cases. But faith is not evidence, uh, belief without seeing. There is a line from scripture that says, blessed are those who believe without having seen. But that is not a definition of faith. That's a reward for those who didn't need further evidence, right? They only got the base logical evidence. They didn't get the actual seeing evidence as well. Faith is trust. That's that's actually what faith is, right? It's trust. Faith in me, believe in me, faith, trust. When you have faith in a system, you believe the system works. That's trust in the system. When you believe in Christ, and it's not just that you think he's real, it's that you trust him. And that's why we use this in Christianity to distinguish against uh, people who believe that Jesus is real but don't actually trust in him all the time. We would say those people don't have faith even though they believe Jesus is real. The Bible talks about this when it says the demons believe that Jesus is real and they believe he's Lord of everything, but they don't trust him. They don't want to be under his rule. And so ultimately faith is trust and trust can be earned in all sorts of ways, right? You can get trust via loads of evidence or you can get trust just because you decided that, that you wanted to that day. Um, a lot like gambling, you could decide that the Green Bay Packers are going to win the Super Bowl because you've done a ton of statistics and you believe they had the best shot to win the Super Bowl, or you could just flip the coin and say, yeah, they're going to win. Uh, either way, you can end up winning the money at the end of the day, right? That you bet on them that they're going to win the Super Bowl. Um, but the fact that you bet on them and that you had faith in them um, can come from all sorts of things. It did not need to be a blind decision. And so I disagree with the Christians who say that faith must inherently be a blind choice without evidence. And I absolutely disagree with the atheists who who get angry. I saw Aaron Ra, just another atheist, get really angry when somebody said that faith could be based on evidence. He was like, that's that's against the definition of faith, which is against maybe your definition of faith, but like the Oxford definition of faith. Speaking of Oxford, um, it's just, it's trust, it's belief. Yeah. And also, did he, did he just call himself an agnostic? He did. Is it, okay, because <laughs> I can only see that after having listened to the previous stuff as false humility which he's just deceiving himself and deceiving others because again he started off um like in the first minute saying in fact there's no agency and no design right so he's not agnostic he has a positive position that there is no agency and that the universe is blind and indifferent yeah mm. yep I, and there's a lot of juxtaposing juxt views here he does not hold similar standards at all which again if God is real and the Bible is true, we'd expect an atheist to be flip-flopping back and forth between different positions because ultimately his his position is on sinking sand. So he has to steal from the Christian position and steal from the Muslim position and steal from the truth because his own position is bankrupt. He steals from the logic position, which is part of Christianity, to say that those who um, rely purely on narratives are wrong because they refuse to debate logically. He steals from that to say that Christianity is wrong because we use narratives. And then he uses narratives <laughs> to defend his position. That's straight contradiction, but he doesn't care ultimately because atheism is not logical. As much as it reports to be, as much as it tries to convince you it is, it is not. And I think this speech is like super evidence of that in that he, he contradicts himself all the time and doesn't care because he doesn't care. He, he ultimately is just trying to proselytize his position, which is 
skepticism, which is a is a positive affirmation, is a positive position to say that you are not going to believe in God until somebody convinces you otherwise. That is a defendable position, and so you should be willing to defend it and not cop out. I've been passionate <laughs> by Cosmic Skeptic. I said at the very outset of this episode that I think his kind of position, this swarmy, I'm not willing to defend my position, but I'm willing to attack another's position is dangerous. I think he's also smart and good at, at having a lot of different frameworks that are hard to follow, um, but you, you need to follow them. And that's why I'm, I'm intimidated by his tactics because I think they're powerful tactics um, without seeming unreasonable. It's a lot like Christopher Hitchens and that Christopher Hitchens was also very good at setting a million different frameworks that were very hard to disprove because he'd give you a lot. And he was very good at keeping calm while still lobbing very emotional bombs. Whereas like Richard Dawkins is, does not keep calm when he lobs emotional bombs. So it's really easy that the, the audience clearly sees when he gets flustered and red faced and his hair gets sweaty and he's talking about how evil a God is. Like it's easy to see that he's unhinged, but it's very much harder to see when Cosmic Skeptic Alex O'Connor is unhinged because he's got such a, a plain affect. So um, I am intimidated by him as an opponent and want to point out specifically, perniciously, why he is dangerously wrong on almost everything he said today. So um, hope that was defense of, of Christianity for our viewers. If not, please tell us why it wasn't in the comments. I am happy to passionately engage in logical, not emotional debate in the comments if you decide to. Any closing thoughts? I'll throw something else out there. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> so... Um, William Lane Craig, I know you're not a, not a fan of him, but um, he goes so far as to say on his website, there's no reason to think that God and evil are logically incompatible. There's no explicit contradiction between them, but if the atheist means there's some implicit contradiction between God and evil, then he must be assuming some hidden premises which bring out this implicit contradiction. But the problem is that no philosopher has ever been able to identify such premises. Uh, and then go to the Bible. <laughs> Much uh, bigger fan of the Bible. <laughs> Romans one twenty two. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Mm -hmm. This is Alex O'Connor. First Corinthians three nineteen. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. And then going back to First Corinthians one twenty five. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and uh, the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen. So, try to presume uh, don't try to be the judge of God yes yeah I think the ultimate premise um, the the unsaid assumptions when atheists attack the problem of evil they say that if there's evil in this world and God is good and he's all-powerful definitionally he should have stopped all the evil because he's good and he's all-powerful and therefore should have wiped it like evil shouldn't be able to exist because he could have stopped it and and we posit and the reason philosophers don't accept that position of atheists is because why why do you think that an all good god would stomp out evil um because what if evil is a condition of the greatest good which is very william lane craig kind of argument but i think it's, it's an argument that works is that you are assuming that an all good god with all, all powerful would need to stamp out evil which is an assumption that you can't make I would say God uses evil in Scripture mm -hmm. for good. He says that I mean through Joseph in in Genesis says what you when Joseph speaking to his brothers what you meant for evil God meant for good. So he uses human means to even actually even overcome and resolve evil. Right, and I think importantly there we don't we don't run away from the fact that um, God 
allowed the evil to happen specifically, uh, i.e. we don't pretend that God was like, uh-oh, there's evil, now I got to make the best of it. We say that God said that evil I'm going to specifically allow it to happen because there will be greater good out of mm-hmm. it. And that good would not have happened had the evil not happened. That goes for the cross, goes for the fall of Adam and Eve. Like these were things that God foresaw and explicitly allowed because they would create a greater good. They were not... Um, accidents that he now has to make the best of. We do not hold to that position. I don't think most Christians hold to that position. Um, Christians who do hold to that position, we call it open theists, and we would consider them heretics, fundamentally denying the gospel and God's nature. So um, there you go. Well, that's why we've found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been Michael, the man behind the machine, and to my right has been... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And all the way across the airwaves, it's been... Theodore, under the PC. Thanks for listening. If you want to see the rest of our episodes, you can go to foundcause.podbean.com and download them all for your listening pleasure. If you want to see our beautiful faces and the beautiful face of Alex, who's looking quite dapper. You know, he's kind of an awkward-looking teenager, but he's looking pretty good in this Oxford. Can I say, yeah? do you think he looks a little bit like Rufus Sewell? Oh, yeah. Sewell? Absolutely. He looks like British actor. a couple actors, actually, I can think of, um, especially <laughs> with the tux. He could be the next James Bond. Uh, so if you want to see his beautiful face and our less beautiful faces, you're going to have to go to Found Cause on YouTube or on Facebook, or you can like us and find us there. We're also on iTunes and Spotify and wherever else you may listen to your podcast. Until next time, we talk about something completely different. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.